Father, it is our prayer this morning as we come to this service and as we anticipate and look forward to a new year that you've given to us, this gift of 2023. God, we pray that the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, would be preeminent for us, better than any other gift. And that through our lives, we would show a commitment to believing you, of acting on the faith that you've given to us, the saving faith to trust in your Son, Jesus, as the only way of salvation, forgiveness of sins, and cleansing, and union with God, and fellowship with the Father, the indwelling Holy Spirit, all that we have access to because of the gift of faith that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to activate that faith day by day. It wouldn't be just a faith that we look back on and remember and talk about the work of faith in leading us to salvation that happened sometime in the past, but that that work of faith would be a perpetual, continual, active faith that we express day by day. Lord, lead us. Help us to grow in faith. Help us to model that faith. Help us to show the world that there is nothing better in this life than believing in Jesus. May we show it through our life. May we show it through our obedience. May we show it through our giving, as we'll see this morning in our passage today. May in all things you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. We find ourselves in the book of Luke again. We're back in Luke, and so it's, uh, it's, it's great to be back. It's actually easier as a, as a teacher to know where you're going to be in the, in, in the coming weeks. And so uh, it, 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 it relieves a tremendous amount of pressure to know we're, we're back in Luke. We're going to be taking it piece by piece. We're going to be working through it um, and seeing the truths that are there. It's our commitment to exposition. It's our commitment to the authority of Scripture the, the sufficiency uh, of, of the word of God in our lives. This is why we, we, we are committed to the verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter kind of approach to teaching. The, the, the goal this morning was to pick up Luke chapter 8. And by the way, uh, if you can begin to turn there, if you don't have your own Bibles, Luke chapter 8. Uh, if you're using the, the Pew Bible, it's on page, I think, 864. I would encourage you to, to, to be there with us as we're working together through this passage um, the, the goal was to, was to cover the first 25 verses today. Um, we're going to do verse 1 through 3. That's what we're going to try to do. And hopefully, um, this is an area where I know in my own life, there is a, uh, there is a huge need for growth. I, I imagine that this is an area where you could use some help as well. And so we're going to slow down. We're not going to blaze through the first 25 verses we're going to take our time. Hopefully, it will probably seem by the time we're done, we're moving too fast because there's so much to say. Jesus had much to say about giving. Jesus cared an awful lot about your pocketbook. Uh, this is not something that, uh, that any, any preacher or teacher wants to cover, but this is something that is essential for a believer who wants to grow in faith. So what is faith? If I were to just ask you this question to kind of lead us out, what, what is faith? How would you describe faith? What, what does it look like? 
How would you begin to define faith for, for the people in your community, the people in your workplace, students, for the people in, in your classes, in your school? How would you begin to define faith? What does it mean to believe? We understand that, that there is a, an entering into faith. There is a, a believing that begins in our conversion and trusting in Jesus to do for us what only God can do in terms of saving us, forgiving us, cleansing us, leading us into relationship with him. That is kind of the beginning of faith for us. Believing that, that, that God is able and sufficient as the only source of salvation for us. That's where faith begins. But faith is not meant to stop there. Because Jesus will say, the just shall live by faith. There is a continuing, an active, present faith that must be true in the life of every believer. Because of what God has done for us in leading us to salvation and faith in God, but the expression of a life of a person who believes in Jesus will be exemplified in a life of faith. So what does that look like? Well, like I said... Uh, we have been in Luke. We, we've actually covered the first seven chapters. We're in Luke chapter 8 now. In chapter 7 and chapter 8, we'll really focus on this theme, this theme of faith. Jesus elevated the faith and emphasized, featured the faith of the centurion at the beginning of Luke chapter 7. The unexpected, mind-blowing faith of this centurion who believes that Jesus is able to save and help rescue his servant at a distance. Just send the word, Jesus. Just send the word from where you are, the power of God who is able to be present everywhere. You can rescue my servant from a distance. And he was right. And Jesus elevates and emphasizes this extraordinary faith of the centurion. And then he'll take a trip from, from the, the area of Capernaum. He'll go through Nazareth, and he'll kind of come down the backside of the hill to this no-name place called Nain, this little village, obscure, never mentioned again in the Bible. And Jesus will intersect with a funeral procession that's taking place. This widow, her only son, is in this casket being led through the streets of this village and everyone is weeping because hope is now gone. All of the financial support that would be bound up in this young man is all of her hopes have, have faded away and disappeared until somebody, some stranger that she had never met walks into town, puts his hand on the casket, raises this son from the dead and then now faith erupts. Faith explodes in this little town who had never even heard about Jesus. This theme of faith will continue now as we're working our way through Luke chapter 8. And uh, the, the goal this morning was to talk about the, the four examples or the four ways that we can express faith. What, what does faith look like? What does faith do? And, and so we'll, we'll talk about one this morning and pick up the next three next week. And then the second half of Luke talks about not only the call to faith and what faith looks like, but, but the fact that you can believe in Jesus. And he gives four reasons why you can believe in Jesus. We're going to look at that hopefully next week. But how would you say your faith shows up 
day by day? How do we demonstrate and model and exemplify a believing in Jesus? Well, obviously it happens through the ways we obey the word of God, the the things that we say, the priorities that we make, the way that we interact with the people around us, how we raise our families, how we prioritize uh, the, the mission that God has set us on. This morning we're going to see, though, that faith will show up in how we give. We're not quite there yet, it's not, but we're going to get there. I do want you to understand, and you know this, the greatest men and women in history were people of faith. Those are the people that God was able to use. Those are the difference makers in history. Those are, the, those are the people throughout the ages of time that God used to accomplish his purposes because it wasn't based upon their power and everyone knew it. It was based upon faith in a supreme power, the power of God. And so as they believed in that supreme power, that sovereignty of God, that authority of God, that ability of God to provide, God used that faith to change history. And God intends and wants, desires to do the same thing in in and through you because the just will live by faith. Maybe you've read the biography of George Mueller, one of my heroes. George Mueller has said this. this He lived back in the 1800s. He says, I have joyfully dedicated my whole life to the object of exemplifying how much may be accomplished by prayer and faith. And God did that. I could tell you the story about George Mueller and how God used his devotion to faith to show that he was able. And in the 1800s, George Mueller was able to give away more than a million dollars not because he asked for it, but because God just knew he was faithful in investing in a Bible college, investing in missionaries, investing in an orphanage, and seeing that God was faithful at every moment to provide for their needs without ever asking anyone for help. God was faithful. He says this as well. He says, quote, the greater the difficulty to be overcome, the more will be seen to the glory of God. How much can be done through prayer and faith? Did you get that? The harder things are, the greater the glory to God when you believe that he's able. I wish I could say I did this well. I wish I could say that I had this all together. But if there's there's any area of my life where I want to grow, it's this area of faith. I want to see God do great things for his glory because of believing faith in me and in this church. One of the ways we do that is through the way we give. And by the way, it shouldn't surprise us then that, that, the, that the greatest enemy of faith in our society is taking the bull by the horns and locking in your future financial destiny. It's having everything covered, and it's surprising how much there is in terms of insurance to guarantee that the things that you are spending are not going to be wasted eventually. And I'm not saying that those things are bad, but I just think about life insurance, workers' comp, vacation insurance, travel insurance, fire insurance, flood insurance, and any assurance that you can possibly imagine. I even read somewhere that 
that actors are insuring their own parts of their body to make sure that they can guarantee an income down the road. It is unbelievable what we insure. And the more we insure, the less we have to believe in God. The less we have to show that God is able. And again, don't get me wrong, <laughs> I have insurance, I have home insurance, I have car insurance, it's, it's okay. But the more we believe in God, the less we'll depend on insurance in earthly things, in insurance more in investing in heavenly things. May God help us. So where are we in the story? Let me just catch us up real quick. First, we've been looking through the, the, the public ministry of Jesus in Galilee. Let me, let me read just the, the, the first several verses here of Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, to kind of help you see where we are. It says, Soon afterward, he, speaking of Jesus, went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. We kind of picked up the, the story of the ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. And we saw how, how Luke is, is featuring Jesus' ministry in Nazareth, his hometown. You would think that if, if, if any place where Jesus has the home field advantage, it would be Nazareth. Surprisingly, in looking at John and comparing Jesus' ministry to, to Luke and the rest of the Gospels, we actually discover that, that this is about a year into Jesus' ministry. He's already been serving in Judea, across from John the Baptist at the, the Jordan River. And, and once John the Baptist gets put into prison, then Jesus and his disciples then make their way up to Galilee. And, and the first story that we see is Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth, sharing his mission statement that's coming from Isaiah chapter 61. Here Jesus is again. What is he doing? Jesus is preaching the gospel. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom to those who would listen. It's a ministry of proclamation. And Jesus then calls his disciples. We see that in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And we, we, we understand that there are a number of people who are following Jesus at this time, Crowds of individuals who are just kind of gathering and, and, and following him wherever he goes. But, but Jesus will choose out some specific individuals, 12 men whom he will call apostles who will carry out his mission in the world. He designates these men disciples. He'll, he'll make their relationship with him official by calling them disciples. But what would mark the followers of Jesus? What would we come to expect in the disciples that Jesus would commission to ministry? Well, we will find from them the same thing, the same marks of discipleship that we saw in the Old Testament. They will be marked by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him to righteousness. Well, <laughs> not surprising. So will these men. They'll be marked by faith. Faith in believing Jesus but it was going to require a complete commitment to the cause, a complete commitment and devotion to the ministry and mission of Jesus. And we see that right out of the gate in Luke chapter 5, verse 11. It says, And when they, speaking of Peter and Andrew and James and John, had brought their boats to land, notice, 
they left everything and followed him. A complete abandonment of personal ambition and a complete commitment and devotion to Jesus, the work of Christ. Several verses later in Matthew or Luke chapter 5, verse 27, it says, And Jesus said to him, speaking of Levi or Matthew, whichever, one, uh, whichever name you choose, who was the tax collector, he says, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose, speaking of Levi, and followed him. I want you to think about this for a moment. When Jesus talks about discipleship, what does he mean? Well, Jesus will define discipleship. We'll get there in chapter 9 in probably two or three weeks from now. We're going to cover the definition that Jesus gives of discipleship, and it's a little bit more than maybe you'd expect. It says in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, he says, And he said to all, everyone who is following after him, everyone who gave lip service to, to following him and being a disciple of him, he wanted to set the record straight. I want you to understand what true discipleship and true faith means. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so when Jesus will tell his disciples at the end of his ministry and he will commission them to service in Matthew chapter 28, he says, go make disciples. And what he means is make people that do what you are doing. Make people like you. Make people who are disciples in the same way in terms of investment and commitment and devotion to the ministry is you. <laughs> so, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Christ, then, then our life of devotion should emulate the life and ministry and characteristics that we see in these disciples. And one word might describe this, not just discipleship, but faith. God is calling his followers to faith. Jesus didn't ask the disciples to do anything by the way that he hadn't already done. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus set the example of divesting himself of all the glories and majesties of heaven, humbling himself to come and become a man. He humbled himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant so that he in his poverty might offer something to you and me through faith and grace. The gift of relationship with God and forgiveness and hope in heaven. Jesus is calling his disciples to the same thing. Isn't it amazing that we, in walking in the steps of Christ, can not only emulate his example, but we can show the priority of our life that points to heaven, that points to the sufficiency of God, that, that points to the fact that, that there's nothing that this world has to offer me that I don't have better in heaven with him. So Jesus models faith he encourages his disciples to emulate faith. And, and here in Luke chapter 8, we're going to see one of the, the examples of faith here in the first three verses. It, it, it is a faith that gives. 
The faith that God had called us to, the faith that Jesus wants us to emulate is a faith that gives. Notice here again, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through the, through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. <laughs> they were with him. The disciples were with Christ. They, this was a, a continuing expression of the active faith they had in Jesus. And, and if you remember anything about Jesus' ministry, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of lack in Jesus' ministry. Jesus will say, I don't even have a place to lay my head. And, and, and remember the example where the Pharisees are coming and, and they're criticizing Jesus and they're, they're, they're talking trash about his disciples because as they walk through the grain fields on a, on a Sabbath, uh, the, the disciples are hungry, their tummies are grumbling, they're, they're picking the, the heads of the grain, they're rubbing it in their hands, they're eating. Why? Because they didn't have any other food. Their sufficiency, their provision was dependent upon Christ. And they knew they could trust him. They knew they could trust him. And they knew their life was better. And God was using them because of confidence in a God who would provide. Jesus, his ministry is characterized, we see here, by proclamation and bringing the good news the, the ESV doesn't really draw it out as well. There's a, there's a preaching and a teaching ministry. There's a, a proclamation kind of ministry. This word keruso and euangelizo, those two words that help us understand that the, that the power of God was known through the word. The same word, by the way, that all of us have been given through the, through the scripture. The same power of God through his Holy Spirit, through the word of God, shows up through those who follow Christ. Jesus is not interested in emphasizing the social or political issues of the day. He's not interested in, in engaging in speculative philosophies or discussions or offering some sort of self-help. Jesus is concerned about the kingdom and making sure that everybody who is living in first century Israel knows how to enjoy God. How to really taste and see that God is good. And here are these disciples. They, they're committed. They're committed because they're devoted to the work and ministry of Christ. But then we notice something pretty spectacular here in verse 2. Notice with me the, the last part, the last phrase of verse one spilling into the first phrase of verse two. Notice, and the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. There's, there's a group of, of women who were here too. They want to demonstrate their commitment to Christ in following him as well. For a rabbi in first, the first century, to have a woman accompanying him was virtually unprecedented, and I might even say scandalous. Like many others in the ancient world, the rabbis had a, a low view of women and refused to teach them. But Jesus' actions were not only politically incorrect, but it expressed the heart of God in that every person, man or woman, boy or girl, is an image bearer of God and thus has value, intrinsic value. So Jesus calls 
the crowds, whoever will follow, men and women, boys and girls. And they come, and they follow. This was not just any other group of women. We find that they've experienced the healing ministry of Jesus. And I think the collection of names that are given here would represent those who had personally been touched by Jesus in terms of healing. Whether physical healing from their infirmities or casting out demons, they were liberated. They, they enjoyed the, the work of God and Christ in their life. And so here they are. There's devotion. They, they have personally benefited from the grace of Christ to them, and now they want to be conduits of grace to others. So Jesus' ministry is seen through the, the with him disciples who were there. But Jesus' ministry is also supported by these women. Verse 2 continues. It says, Some of the women who had been with, uh, who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. That's amazing. Here are these women, compelled by love for Jesus. Here are these women with this abiding commitment to the mission, giving up personal security and investing in the work of Christ. At least at this point in the journey, the finances that were necessary were coming from these ladies. God used through these women their support to enable the work of Christ. Their abandonment of personal ambition, just like the disciples, and their surrender to the objectives and priorities of God. What examples they are to us. Mary Magdalene, Magdalene is not a surname, but it describes the, the village from which she came, this village of Magdala, which is about five and a half miles south and west of Capernaum, which is at the kind of the point, the top of the Sea of Galilee. This region was a hotbed for demonic activity. And demoniacs in the scripture are always friendless except in a few rare cases where family members are, are, are seeking to help and, and then bring them to Jesus. But they're always joyless. Mary had experienced some kind of liberation. We don't know her story, but we, we recognize that either somebody brought Mary to Christ or Jesus tracked her down. And here she is, free, liberated. The work of Christ, the mission statement we see in, in Luke chapter 4 where he sets the captives free and, and, and Mary of Magdalene is the one who experiences that and is quoted here in our text. Liberated from seven demons, now transformed. Mary owed everything to Christ and she knew it. Her subsequent love for him reflected the profound depth of her gratitude. Then Joanna, Joanna, who is the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant. This is Herod Antipas, Herod who is the son of Herod the Great. And you remember what Herod the Great did, right? This, this, this uh, uh, nativity story where, where Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 1 sends individuals to go to Bethlehem and massacre all the kids uh, two years uh, old and younger. This is his son, Herod Antipas. And so for Joanna to be in the company of Christ, 
who was a threat to the, the throne was quite risky. But because of her devotion to Jesus and the ministry of God in her life, she's here, supporting Jesus with her finances. And Susanna, nothing is known about Susanna, but she too is a woman of means. She too is a woman who's experienced Christ's firsthand ministry in her life, and now she's pouring out. She's, the grace that she's received is now a grace that she's happy to give. In this continuing ministry of these women, we see them here in Luke chapter 8, but if we, if we turn the page to Luke chapter 24, uh, we'll also notice that, that these same women are the ones who are devoted to Christ to the very end. Uh, they're the ones who accompany the disciples on the way to Passover there in Jerusalem at the very end of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, they're the ones, by the way, the only ones who are followers of Christ who are at the foot of the cross, these women. Their devotion to Jesus to the very end. And so Mary Magdalene is the one who gets to experience the first glimpse of the physical and resurrected Savior. She's rewarded with her devotion to Christ in that way. So how does that apply to us in terms of faith? How does our faith show up in terms of what we prioritize, what we value, what we show we trust, and what we're confident in, how does our checkbook demonstrate a commitment in faith to Jesus? Does God ask every disciple to be poor? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, a snapshot of these women will give you testimony of that, that they're giving out of their means. But he does ask every disciple to prioritize the kingdom. Every disciple, every follower of God in this room and watching on live stream, every disciple of Christ is meant to prioritize the kingdom. The truth is that our giving is a reflection of our faith. What do you believe is important? What do you value? Where is your confidence? Where is your security? And don't get me wrong, we are called to be good stewards. We're called to be wise. We're called to take care of our families. Those things are true. But, but we can't allow those to become excuses for the faith that we can grow as we trust God with things that are, that are out of our control. How does our checkbook demonstrate faith in God? There's an amazing thing that we find in the ministry of Christ in these ladies. When Jesus heals the paralytic, when Jesus goes and he puts his hand on the widow's son and raises him, in next week when we come to this, when, when Jesus goes to Jairus' daughter and, and raises her from the dead, these ladies could say, I had something to do with that because I, I am personally vested in the ministry of Christ. They got to see it happen. They got to enjoy the benefits, the fruit of the labors that were taking place through Jesus' ministry because they were vested in it. They were committed to it. I want you to understand that God is doing a work in the world. I know how dark it seems. I know how dismal and hopeless it seems at times, but God is doing a work. He promises to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. He is doing his work. 
Will we be part of it? And God is doing a work here at Maranatha. There's ministry that you see, and there's ministry that you don't. We have, through the beginnings of the ministry here at Maranatha, sought to find ways to, 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 to expand our footprint and make an impact. That happened through the school for many, many, many years. It happened through missions for many, many years. It happened through a ministry of prayer and supporting individuals to, to go around the world. That is still taking place. Uh, this summer, and I don't want to be premature, <laughs> the goal this summer is to send our teens internationally to serve the Lord in another place. Okay? That takes a lot of resources. It's going to take your giving to partner with our students to have a, a view to how you can invest in them and build in them a love for the world by being a part of investing somehow in supporting their ministry objectives. We, uh, for the last three years, we've had something called the Call to Purpose Fund. There, there's, uh, there's some money that we set aside every single year so that we can make ministry tangible for you. So that you don't have to say, I'm limited by my resources. I'm not sure if I can, if I can really step into that. So we have $10,000 that we've set aside, and that's just something that we want to do to encourage uh, faithful, uh, risky, risk-kind-of-taken ministry initiative that you will do to, to reach your community, to, to build into the people around you, to love the Lord through your service. This past year, we had the joy of, uh, of having a couple of interns. $24,000 we set aside because we are committed as a church to personal investment in the next generation and trying to raise up future leaders who will be the next pastors and leaders of the church. What a joy that has been. There may be opportunities for us to partner with other churches. There, were, there was a church a couple of years ago that said, will you help us? We anticipate that in the future, there will be churches around Columbus that will say the same thing. Will you help us? And we're not going to be able to do that unless, unless we're all in. Unless we all understand the, the mission that God has put us on and, and we're, we're vesting in that process. We want to send a group of adults to the mission field as well. It's been a while since we've done that. We're hoping that this fall we'll be able to have a missions conference and something is in the works already and uh, I want to tell you about it. It's spectacular though. As you know, many of you have taken part of being a part of the biblical counseling training in Lafayette. We as a church are committed to helping you grow so you can be a better counselor of your friends, of your neighbors, of the people in your small group, the people in your family. Everything we do as a ministry takes a team. Those who lead, those who serve, those who pray, and those who give. Maybe you do all those things. The more we look to God and trust God, the more we'll see God show up in our lives. Don't you want to see more of God in your life? I sure do. What work is God accomplishing through your investment? So there's some principles of giving. And I don't know how I did this again. We've got five minutes to blaze through this. 
principles of giving. It's all in the word, okay? So these are principles you know. There's nothing, nothing new. But let me just encourage you. Some principles of giving. First is follow in Christ's steps. That's as simple as instruction as I can give. Obey God. What could get any clearer or easier than that? And so Jesus lays out some principles of discipleship. And, and uh, I can tell you, I've got miles to go before this will ever be true in my life. Okay, but, but when Jesus sends out his disciples in Luke chapter 10, he says this, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road because the, the mission is so urgent and because your God is so faithful, you can trust him. Don't take anything. Reckless abandon, you might say, to the mission that God has set you on. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, uh, it's similar but even worse. <laughs> Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. This is radical. And I'm not suggesting this is for everyone. But as we step in and believe that God is faithful, we will find that he is faithful. He will not let you down. So you can, you can follow Christ's steps. You can also respond and need to respond to God's grace. These women had been recipients of grace. They had, they had enjoyed and savored the special ministry of Christ to them, and so they became conduits of grace to others. And Paul will call the church of Corinth to the same thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 6 to 9, uh, speaking about grace and this gift that he's encouraging them to give and collect for the church of Jerusalem, he says this. He says, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. That's interesting. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Your giving is an expression of grace. Why? It goes on. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. I'm talking about you, Church of Corinth. <laughs> I'm telling the world how the Holy Spirit is in you. And so I want you to prove that what I'm telling them is true. And this is the reason. This is the foundation. We get to verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Are you a recipient of grace this morning? Have you enjoyed the benefits of God's measureless infinite grace to you? Does that compel you to want to show that grace to others? Respond to God's grace. Next, grow in your faith in love for God. John Wesley, for example, 
He was a great evangelist in the 18th century, born in 1703. In 1731, he began to limit his expenses so that he had more money to give to the poor. This principle of fasting in Isaiah chapter 58, we don't have time to to read that, but this this principle of holding back for yourself so that you have something to give to others, that's that's the principle that, that that he followed. So the first year, he, had, he got 30 pounds in terms of salary a year. He found that he could spend, or that he could just live on 28, so he gave away two pounds. In the second year of income, his income doubled, but he held his expenses even, and so he had 32 pounds to give away. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, and he gave away 62 In his long life, Wesley's income advanced to as high as 1,400 pounds a year. That's incredible. But he rarely let his expenses rise above 30 pounds. He said that he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his possession at a time. When he died in 1791 at the age of 87, the only money mentioned in his will were the coins to be found in his pocket. He was a one who experienced and understood the faithfulness of God in holding back so that he could invest in heavenly things. He grew in faith. Next, demonstrate your thanks to God. Demonstrate your thanks to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 and 12 help us to see this. It says, He who supplies... Uh, seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. That's what we just saw in our example. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgivings to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying to the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing with many thanksgivings to God. Your thanksgiving to what God has done for you in providing for you, your provision to others in meeting their needs, which leads to more thanksgiving. And so if you want to have a chorus of joy in thanksgiving, be a person who understands and is committed to giving, faith-giving so that thanksgiving can abound to God, who deserves all of our thanks. Next, prioritize your mission. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus in the Sermon on on the Mount will will help his audience understand the significance of of giving. Don't be anxious for your life. Lay lay up for yourselves uh, treasures in heaven, not not treasures on earth. And then at the very end of chapter 6, verses 31 to 33, he will say this. He says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Don't be like them. Show that you have hope. You have hope in a God who can provide. Don't be like those stupid Gentiles. God will provide. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Trust me. I'm faithful. You can believe in me. Be a showcase of faith in God through your giving. Prioritize the mission. Next, sow spiritual fruit. We're almost done. Philippians chapter 4, 15 to 18 says this. And you Philippians, 
You yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Your investment in the work in Macedonia is producing massive investment in the kingdom. God is maximizing my ministry because of your faithful giving. We can sow spiritual fruit through our giving. You can sow spiritual fruit. And you, by God's grace, can say, you know what? That missionary or that, that teen who went across the ocean to share the gospel, I was a part of that. God, through his grace, let me take part in that because of my partnership in giving. Finally, you can experience God's power. This, this passage will continue. Paul wants them to understand that, that not only is there spiritual fruit that's being sowed, but, but, but you get to enjoy something you'll never experience in any other way. It says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You will experience the provision and power of God in a way you've never experienced it before. I don't know about you, but I want that. I want that for me. I want that for this church. And God's got to help us grow in our faith so we can trust God who we know and we have seen that God is faithful, but for whatever reason, it is so hard to walk that road, isn't it? May God help us. Oh, Lord, please help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be people who show our faith in you through our gifts. Believing that you are faithful, believing that as we distribute the grace that you've given to us, we will not only be recipients of more grace, but we'll be able to see how that grace is pouring out on others and, 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 and raising up thanksgivings to God. We want to be part of that. God, make that possible. Help us to take the steps we need to take so we can begin to see the blessing of trusting you, that you will supply all of our needs according to the riches, the storehouse of infinite goodness in heaven. That's the supply. It will never run out. May we trust that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you.